Okay, last week we talked about, um, we got about two-thirds of the way through um, Christian spirituality, what is it? And there was one thing I wanted, is, um, is Ashley there? Is Ashley? Too bad. Well, I, I just wanted to, okay, okay. I, I want to say something about her question because um, something I said got posted on Instagram and I, excuse me, and I was sort of thinking, well, that's only part of the story. And, and basically what, what was posted, it says, if you, if you don't feel God, you just keep going. I don't remember exactly what it said, you just keep going. But the premise is that, you know, you'll eventually feel God. That is, you know, you, you kind of, um, uh, faith continues, for, perseveres, even when there isn't feeling or sight or any of that. Uh, but God eventually does show up. Uh, and I, I, you know, you, you can't always know how he's going to show up or what, you know, what are you, what are you, gonna, you can't demand things from God. I mean, you can but but chances are it'll be it'll be iffy but you can ask he says that you know he is glad to give the holy spirit to those who ask so i i just really wanted to say um don't don't have this feeling that you just got to grind away and god will never show up but you got to keep going as if he were there um i anyway at the end of this I, i'll at the end of this one, I'll make some comment, some more comments about that. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to do the last third of this, and then we're going to do uh, something on what is God like, because if we're going to relate to God, uh, we got to kind of know what He's like, so that we can have some confidence that it's worth uh, worth our time. You know, <laughs> how much time are you willing to waste to know God? You know. Um, well, is it worth it? Like Hebrews says, you must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And that last part there, it can be really iffy. For a long part of my life, I thought, well, yeah, God's there and, and he love, loves me, quote unquote, but he probably wouldn't, he doesn't really want to answer my prayers. He doesn't really particularly like me and, and, you know, you probably wouldn't want to hang out with me on a Saturday afternoon. After all, who would, you know? I mean, anyway. Uh, so the, the, the point is that a lot of um, understanding who God is is understanding how much he, he delights in and enjoys his children. And we'll see some things about that in the, the presentation on what is God like. All right. Okay, let's go to. So it was. It's funny because when I was going to. Uh, well, when I was thinking about doing this. All right. So when I was thinking about prepping this, uh, I thought basically the th stuff I'm going to talk about now. I was going to talk about like real early on, um, but I I started to realize that for people to understand what I'm talking about, you got to know, you got to think in relational terms. You got to think about everything is relationships. 
everything in Christianity works by connectedness. Okay, in other words, what is it that you know empowers our our life with God? Being connected to God through the Holy Spirit. You know, how about one, to one another? You know, what is our you know, relationship with one another? We're connected again through the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and we are a temple that God lives in. Um, so this notion of relationships is really important, and I'm not going to talk about everything I said last week, but um, yeah, the main thing about relationships is that we we share our being with another. We open ourselves up to another person, or you know, and that person again reveals himself or opens himself up to us, and we see this. Um, <clears throat> in uh, the way that God reveals himself to us through Christ and how Christ uh, reaches out and calls us friends and he calls us friends because he's showed us everything one of the one of the fascinating there there's a teaching some sometimes you'll hear this teaching about um, the hidden will of God and um, they use that to they use that to explain uh, I have to do this Anyway, to uh, why? Uh, anyway, they use it to explain various theological conundrums that I'm not going to go into. Uh, but the idea that there's there's God's will that you see you read in the Bible, and then there's a hidden will that actually kind of doesn't really match up with exactly with what you read in the Bible, and um, I don't I got I don't believe that I believe that on the cross. God put himself his in he put all his cards on the table. The cross is God's ultimate statement to us of what he um, thinks of us and what he is how far he's willing to go with us. Um, there's a I just was reading something today where um, it reminded me of the statement that the cross was when God said that he was not willing to be God without us. And so um, you can you can ponder that. Um, it's it's but it but it's I, I really agree with that. The cross says I'm I want to be with humanity so much. I'm willing to go all the way. I'm willing to go all the way to death. And if you think about what is the thing that is least like God, death, right? He 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 kind of went to the extreme of becoming his own antithesis uh, in order that he could um, share his being with us to the extreme of the human condition. All right, let, let's, um, in fact, that's where we're going to uh, start off today. Okay. Okay, two aspects of Christian spirituality. This is kind of where I wanted to start, but I had to do all this preliminary spade work. <laughs> okay. Two aspects of Christian spirituality. First, the cross. Okay. And so the cross is movement away from sin. And um, what I mean by that is uh, we, uh, we are, uh, how, let's see, well, like when we we're baptized. We're baptized into Christ's death, into the cross, so to speak. 
the cross is basically the death of Christ, okay? So I'll talk about the cross and the death of Christ sort of interchangeably, okay? Uh, it's, just a, it's just a symbol. The cross is the, represents Christ's death. So through the cross, through the death of Christ, which we identify with, we move away from everything that separated us from God, all of our old life, uh, and so on. We are, the death, the thing that death does is it disconnects us. If you're dead, all of your obligations are gone. You don't have to go to work, right? You know, you don't have to, uh, uh, you can stay home as long as you want, Tammy, once you're dead, right? You can, uh, you, you know, your debts are all gone, you know, at least for you. Um, but not only that, any contractual relationships, marriage, you know, any, anything, it's gone, it's canceled. Um, well, the cross of Christ, um, <clears throat> it, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but it breaks all of these connections to our old life. It breaks our connection to sin. It breaks our connection to the law, ironically. Um, anyway, we'll talk about that in a bit. Okay, so the other um, <clears throat> aspect is the spirit. And so the spirit is movement toward God. In other words, the spirit binds us to God, empowers our connection with God, all right? So um, before, uh, before we're connected to God through the spirit, we have no way, I mean, it says that, it says um, the flesh cannot please God, you know. There's no way for us to have a relationship with God. We just are unable to. The Spirit um, gives us a connection with God that, um, uh, well, like I said, we have a connection which is the basis of a relationship or is a relationship. And all of our, all of our, um, uh, everything about our lives as Christians is spirit empowered if you want to put it that way the presence of god in our lives as christians is everything we have from god okay uh, and god as as i mentioned last week god gives us gives us it all so to speak god doesn't give part of his spirit he gives us the whole because the spirit is a person and so you can't sort of chop up a person. You get a little bit of, well, you could, I guess, with us. You can have some of me, but, you know, <laughs> probably you don't want it anyway, right? But anyway, you know, that, there's that song, what, what, all of me, why not take all of me? Anyway, but, but that's what you get with God. You get it all, right? Uh, God's spirit is fully present or not at all, okay? All right, so with that connection, everything in the, the Christian life is empowered, okay? And so we're going to talk about these two things. Okay, so first of all, the cross. And everybody, uh, I won't say everybody, but everybody thinks of the cross wrong. <laughs> Everybody looks at the cross in mechanical or transactional terms, okay? That is, you know, in Christ, God was balancing the books, and now we can move on from there and 
don't not have to think about it except when we thank god for our salvation thank you for the cross move on right the idea is the cross plays no role in our lives once we're saved that's the way a lot of people think and one of the fascinating things about this is um, we end up with a kind of a um, non uh, not very not very exciting view of salvation and the atonement okay and i've always well i once i really started thinking about this i started realizing that the atonement or the 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 salvation through christ and his cross is um an an amazingly exciting and romantic rescue of a lover pursuing his beloved to the point of death you know the cross is when christ came from heaven so that he could save us he could rescue us he could he he could he went all the way there are a lot of analogies i like to use uh, well all right let me just talk let me just talk about this first um, all of the stuff about balancing the books or they, but did you know that nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christ paid the debt for our sins? That's a fact. You will not find that anywhere because that's not the that's not a metaphor that God uses. Now he does use a ransom metaphor, okay and and we are told you were bought with a price. but notice, it's not that your sins are paid off. It's that you were bought. You were bought out. And, and what is ransom? Ransom is rescue, you see. You were bought out of slavery. You were bought out of captivity. Somebody came and sprung you, okay? Someone got you out of where you're tr the trap that you were in. So Romans 5.8 tells us that God showed his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, a lot of people will say, well, the cross is the satisfaction of God's justice. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the cross was God's love. Okay? And you notice that um, first, 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now you notice there, it doesn't say paying for our transgressions. It says not counting their transgressions against them. It's the same example as, in, it's the same as in the parable of the unforgiving servant. When the unforgiving servant was hauled before the master, with his 20,000 talent debt, the master didn't say, well, somebody's got to pay this. Um, he said, ah, oh, I'll just forgive you. I'll forgive you your debt, okay? There's no discussion of how that debt got paid. The debt got canceled, okay? Similarly here, over and over again, we, we find that our, our, whatever it is that God was holding against us is simply taken out of the way. It's simply tossed away. Now you might say to yourself, well, what about God's justice? Well, the point, of, the point about that is that God, 
through um, God's righteousness is shown in that through this reconciliation we become righteous you see in other words it's kind of like saying um, what's the best way to win a war it's to make the enemy your friend okay it's to make the enemy your friend what's the best way to have a reconciliation with somebody you're the enemy of to turn him into a friend you see well that's what God did God through Christ's death turned us his enemies into his friends and that made us righteous when we used to be sinners you see so God's righteousness is advanced through the fact that he forgave our sins and then thereby enabled us to be to come before him without having to um, without having to pay for our sins ourselves if you want to put it that way you know without having to experience the consequences of our sin which is death in other words if God had given us the consequences of our sin we would have died right in fact that was you know that was what he told Adam and Eve why because the consequences of our sin is that we're separated from God and God is where life comes from so remember back uh, last week I was saying how um, this is eternal life to know God and the only and the uh, to know God the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent that's eternal life to know God and to know Jesus how can that happen if God is holding back you see people will say God can't be in the presence of sin and yet Jesus came into the world to save sinners right anyway um, the cross is the point where God where Christ God in Christ identifies with us what do I mean by that the cross is where um, God took upon himself the consequences of our sin why so he could be with us okay um, for our sake he made him <clears throat> sorry he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God now a lot of people you don't hear this this um, worked out very often in other words uh, for so notice what it's saying here for our sake he made him that is Christ to be sin now think about that do you ever think of Christ becoming sin what does that mean well sin the ultimate position of sin is to be separated from God okay and so in order for Christ to die he had to be separated from God and so he was separated from God and died because we die that is Christ was God identifying with us to the utter depths of our of the human condition he became one of us to the point of us dying so he, he had to die too if he's really going to know what it means to be a human being if he's really going to be one of us if he's really going to be able to capture the fullness of who we are he has to die it's funny because I you know I don't know if you guys follow the stuff going on in the Ukraine right but they you know they publish daily figures of how many people they killed 
like 500 a day, maybe a thousand a day when if things, you know, that. And, and, you know, I, I looked at some of the videos and I mean, I mean, I've seen, you know, my mom died and I saw that, but it's amazing to look at these videos and see a broken, dead human being lying there on the ground, you know, and, and realize that this was somebody that God loved, you know, that Christ died for. I mean, and this is what we do to one another, you know. We are so in love with death that we're willing to do this to one another. And, and we're willing to do it to God when he showed up among us. But he took it. The cross was God going all the way with us, as far as he could with us, okay? I always use, I like this drowning analogy. Imagine you're in, the, you're in, a, in a, a lake or something and you can't swim or something, or get a cramp or something, and you're out there and you're, you're, you're drowning, you know? Well, the, the idea here is Christ became wet so that we could become dry, you know? In Christ died, Christ became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You know, Christ became wet, so to speak, so that we could become dry. So he could pull us out. When Christ went to the bottom of the human condition in death, he then got underneath it, so to speak, and lifted it up as an offering to God. When he raised from the dead, he raised us with him, you see. Okay, so in going all the way to the bottom, he then came all the way to the top with us. Okay, I always like to use this phrase, Christ dove into the mess of the human condition. Have you ever been in a, <laughs> have you ever had like friends or something? Have you ever had a friend who was a real mess? <laughs> have you ever dove into the mess of that person and hung in there? with that person, gone through all the mess, gone through whatever pain, whatever, you know, trouble you might have experienced. That's what Christ did with us. He dove into the mess. And he's still here in the mess with us. So he's in our mess, right? He's with us even in our mess. Hi there. <laughs> Hi. Let's see. I don't know. Let's see. Is that, I, it, was it Lawrence, is it? And is it, uh, no, it's, Doug, okay. Hi. All right. So we're talking about Christ dove, through the cross, Christ dove into the mess of the human condition. <laughs> Sorry. You didn't hear me, did you? I didn't. I was talking. You can say all kinds of stuff. Oh man. Was one of these one, one of these days I'm gonna get hearing aids and then you'll then you'll be sorry. Yeah. Well, I almost did, but then Lee may stop me. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> All right, um, okay, so, so here's the thing. Christ identified with us 
so that we could identify with him. This is a spiritual principle. Much in spirit in the spiritual world works by identification. In other words, you see yourself as dead with Christ. You see yourself as alive with Christ. You identify with Christ. And and apart from that, you identify with one another. You know, you see the other person and you see yourself as belonging to that other person, as one with that other person, and that other person as one with you, you know, the sharing of yourself through identification. Um, it, it's, anyway. Um, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now what is this thing about being united with him in a death like his? Well, that's the cross. Paul in Romans 6 starts off talking about how if you're baptized, you died. Okay? And it's kind of, you know, the symbolism is really obvious, right? You get dunked in the water. That's why I really, I really highly recommend that people get dunked, immersed. The sprinkling, you know, all of these. Oh, man. It's not necessary for salvation, I don't think. I hope not. But anyway, um, but it does make the symbolism really powerful. You go under the water. You have just been buried. It's a symbol of being buried, dying. You can say that we practice a kind of symbolic murder when we... <laughs> anyway, no, I wouldn't go that far, but... I mean, we do practice a kind of cannibalism, right? We eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. But again, I'm not going to go back into that tonight. Maybe another time. But the point I'm trying to make here is when you are buried in baptism, you are buried into Christ's death. Whew. That means you get to come out. You get to come. I have this. I did this cartoon once about when I was a new pastor. I I was saying, you know, when I was first learning the ropes. I didn't really do this, but I, I had this guy standing there, and and I'm and I am up there, you know, behind something, and the guy is saying, um, uh, "I know you're new at this, but you should know better than to give the baptismal meditation in the middle of the baptism." And then the last cartoon uh what do you call it pain this person is standing there dripping next to me dripping with with water so anyway imagine you <laughs> anyway that would be really doing it wrong oh i thought you were like we're gonna dunk them and then you started talking and you talked so long that yes okay. yes that was what was going on and and the guy says come on let him out let him anyway um the point is that we get to come up again why? Because we have newness of life. We are united with Christ in a death like his. And then we are united with him in a resurrection like his. We are raised to newness of life. Okay. Now, now this is symbolic in baptism, but it represents a spiritual reality. Okay. And this is where um, the cross becomes something that we need that, that we interact with, we, we deal with constantly, constantly. Christ tells us that we should um, 
take up our cross daily. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we'll see in a bit here. Okay, first of all, the cross disconnects us. Remember, we we're talking about spirituality is all about connections, right? Connecting with God, connecting with one another. But the cross and death, that's what death does. It disconnects us. The cross is kind of like a, a, uh, a bottle of disconnection fluid, if you want to put it that way. The cross is like a spiritual medicine. It disconnects us from things. Okay? What, is, what does Paul say in Galatians 6.14? But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, through the disconnection of the death of the cross, the world no longer determines my destiny. I don't care what the world says or does to me. And to be honest, it no longer cares about me, you know. That is, as far as we as Christians are concerned, the world is, we're no longer connected to the world in the way ordinary people are, you see. Now you ask yourself, but I feel like I am. But again, if, if through the cross you have been disconnected from the world, you may feel like you are, but, but that's like we were talking about last week. Which is more real, your feelings or the word of God? You see, the word of God says you are now disconnected from the world. So what are the implications of that? That what the world says doesn't matter. The world tells you various things. It says, you know, this is how to have a good life. But you say, well, the world can say that all at once. But I'm going to listen to what God says through the Bible. Okay. The world says... You know, you know, you can come up with all kinds of cliches, right? Um, take care of yourself because no one else is going to take care of you. That's what the world says, right? So you have to, you know, do unto others before they do unto you. Things like that. Destroy your enemy before he destroys you. But the Bible tells us something completely different. It says God will take care of you. It says Jesus, or Jesus says, love your enemies. God will repay. God is the one he... You know, so um, the world is suddenly, suddenly has nothing to say to us. You know, the world no longer determines the outcome of our life. Okay. And we get through the world. Well, there's another passage that says, uh, um, for you have died and your life is, oh no, that's not the one I'm thinking of. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, it is Christ that lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I think, don't remember the exact quote. But the point is, I'm crucified with Christ. The life I now live, I live by faith in him, not by faith in the world, you see. The interesting thing is the world tells you things about yourself. It tells you who you are. It tries to. And it's always wrong. It's always wrong. It's always pushing you into a dehumanizing mold. God's the one who knows who you are, and he will tell you who you are. And in hearing him, you will experience the fullness of your life. Okay, through the, through the cross, we die to sin. Okay, Romans says that we died to sin. 
What does that mean? We died to our separation from God. Okay, when I became a Christian, um, the guy the guy who was telling me about Jesus, at one, at finally he asked me, would you like to accept Christ into your heart? And I said, sure. I, I mean, because I, the Holy Spirit was definitely working in me. So I said, yes, I would. And so he said, okay, well, why don't we pray? Well, at that point, I said, um, um, I don't pray because children, I, I, I did that when I was a child, I don't do that anymore. And he said, maybe that's your pride. Now, the interesting thing to me was, that made perfect sense to me, and I said, yeah, I think you're right. And so I, so I said, yeah, let's pray then. And so we prayed. And what was fascinating to me when I thought about that much later, I thought to myself, I was trying to think, you're supposed to repent, right? Repent, and then you, you know, come to come to God. You, you know, there's a there's a dying to the old thing, and then the the coming uh, uh, being raised to the newness of life. Where had I repented? I couldn't remember it, having repented, and then I suddenly realized, yeah, I repented. I repented of my pride. I repented of my pride that kept me from praying. Okay. And suddenly I could pray. I could pray to God. And God certainly um, embraced it. Because by the end of the day, when, when the day started, I was an atheist, didn't believe in God. By the end of the day, I was talking to God, walking around in a park, talking to God, feeling God's presence. It was weird. It was supernatural. Okay, That's what happened after... Christ met me. But in order for that to happen, I had to repent of my pride that said, I will not pray because that's what children do. Okay? So I died to sin. I died to the thing that was separating me from God. The law. Now this is really interesting that we die to the law. Why do we die to the law? Well, this has to do with the adversarial relationship I talked about last week. The idea is that the law is like a big no that stands between us and God. Because when we approach God, we, through the law, think about, think about how the law works. If the law has anything to say to you, what, is, what, does, what does it have to say to you? Guilty. Otherwise, it doesn't say anything. You see, if you're driving down the street and you're obeying all the traffic regulations and so on, the law will have nothing to say to you, right? It's when that blue light goes on or whatever it is, red light goes on in your rearview mirror, that's the law talking to you and it is saying you did something wrong, you see? And so you see how the law, coming to God through law, is essentially going to put an adversarial relationship between you and God. You and God are basically at odds with one another, you see. And the law is making demands on you that you may be able to keep, but you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, um, let me give you an example. Um, I really hate the fact that, let me see if I could say this. I really believe in free speech, okay? And I really hate the fact that 
people can, you know, can tell me what I can and can't say. Okay. Now, for example, I won't give it any. Imagine I want to say something. Okay. Now, actually, I have no desire to say the particular thing I'm thinking of. Absolutely none. But I really want to be able to say it. You see, it bothers me that I can't if I want to, even though I don't want to. You see, it rankles. It makes me feel how how come somebody gets to tell me what I can and can't say? You see, that's what the law does. The law, the law, even if you can keep it, it makes you feel kind of angry and kind of rebellious. And it stimulates the very behavior it seeks to regulate. This is right in the Bible in Romans chapter 7. Okay. The law, you know, the law stimulates sin. Paul said when, when the law that said don't covet came along, man, I wanted to covet really bad. You see, that's the way the law works. That's why it's Christians who are doing all of the you know the you know anti anti whatever um, are misguided because you're by telling people you can't do this you can't do that you're stimulating the very rebellion that you're trying to suppress instead what you should be doing is telling people about Jesus and and having them be filled with the Holy Spirit and it's the Holy Spirit that empowers them to live a life that's pleasing to God, you see. So what you have are you trying to batten, it's like trying to keep the lid on a pressure cooker and it keeps blowing up. Whereas what you really should be doing is trying to, you know, um, fix the inside, get rid of all the pressure on the inside through the spirit. All right, so the law doesn't do what people expect it to do. And this is really paradoxical to people. People think, well, how are you going to deal with sin? Through the law, right? Makes perfect sense, right? And yet, if you read Romans 6.14, it says, um, uh, the sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law, but under grace. Now, if that doesn't kind of blow your mind a little bit, it's basically saying be, what God has done is finesse the whole issue. The law was basically just stimulating rebellion. So God said, All right, let's just get rid of it. Let's not, not, you're not under the law. It says that more than once in Romans and in Galatians. You're not under that. We're not doing it that way anymore. Instead, we're going to do it relationally through grace. You respond to God's grace by faith and you and God are good. Um, how was it? Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. You see? You respond to God's grace by faith and you're righteous. What? But see, that's my point. Everything works relationally, including righteousness. Righteousness is a relationship. Righteousness means you can stand rightly before God. And God says, let's do that on the basis of you saying yes and trusting me 
when I tell you I'm going to do things, certain things. You believe God and God says, good enough for me. Now let me ask you this, who gets to call it? If God calls it righteousness, are you going to argue? I don't think you're, I mean, you could, but it would seem that that's kind of wrong-headed, isn't it? So you see, so many people are kind of telling God how he's got to, you know, what he's got to do to let people in, you know. Um, but anyway, the point I'm trying to make is we die to the law through the cross. The law is, the law, it actually says that the, the, the writing of commandments and ordinances, which was against us, was taken out of the way and was nailed to the cross. Okay? That's in Colossians, I think. Enmity with one another. Ephesians talks about how through the cross, God made one new humanity out of two. He was talking about Jews and Gentiles, but it's generalized. God made one new humanity through the cross. We are all reconciled to one another because we're all reconciled to God. Okay? And that's why we forgive one another. We forgive one another because that's the way it's done in the kingdom of God. That's You're in the kingdom of God, you're forgiven, you forgive, and everything works. Okay? This is how God plays the game. And remember, these are, you know, the only way to lose God's game is not to play. So if you want to not forgive, you can go ahead. But he's, if you're keeping score, he's going to keep score. And you won't have much fun with that. <laughs> the flesh. We die to the flesh through the cross. The flesh is, essentially, the, the flesh is not meat. All right? It's not, you know, what we were. The flesh is a... Um, uh, I don't want to. I want to use the word reification, but I'm not going to use it because nobody knows what it means. The flesh is a a label that Paul puts on a whole complex of behaviors and and interactions that we uh, find ourselves in apart from God. Okay, so most of the th behaviors of the flesh stem from the body which is why the flesh is an appropriate term for it. For example, when you get angry, what happens? You're nervous, you're, you know, you're, the hair on the back of your head stands up, you, you flood, you, you just have a, right, you know? It's kind of like someone shocked you with a, shocked your nervous system when you're angry. You ever have that happen? Where, where you know, somebody says or does something, you, you just really get triggered and you, you know? Or, you know, you know the opposite sex will produce a response, okay? And, and uh, what else do we have? Um, what you see, you know, you see, um, uh, I don't know, I saw a car, orange sports car, and I noticed it, well, because it was orange and because it was a sports car, you know. But why, you know, what am I gonna do with it? Anyway, the point is that our, our we see things, we experience things, everything goes through the flesh, and we are always trying to feed it. We're always trying to satisfy it, okay? And it becomes the thing that our life is all about. Our life is all about satisfying the flesh. 
satisfying our physical needs, satisfying our aesthetic, aesthetic is maybe the wrong word, but our desire for stimulation, um, you know, satisfying, you know, the fact is right nowadays, everything is all about, you know, you know, the, you know, our eyes are glued to screens all the time, right? You know, and, and, and the way they do it, you know, they have certain ways that they know will get you to look more and look more intensely by, you know, the way they flash things on the screen. It's been known for a long time. It's been known for a long time that if you change what a person sees on the screen every few seconds, they will, you know, they'll really want to watch. Um, they, this, was, this is how, why Sesame Street was so popular among kids because it changed scene or did something every few seconds whereas educational shows had formerly done it they'd maybe gone a minute without changing what was shown but sesame street did whatever what they did in normal television shows so that people would watch and so everybody thought oh sesame street's so good but it's just doing what all television shows do to grab onto you you know or there's gambling, right? You know that gambling is uh, uh, random reinforcement, which uh, B.F. Skinner showed was the way to maximize the response of pigeons in the Skinner box. When they, if you randomly and reinforce, randomly reinforce the pigeons pecking, um, they would do it the most. Like if you did it, like say every, if you reinforced them, gave them a pellet, say every five pecks. Okay, they would get used to that. If you if you never did it, they would not, you know. But the the thing that made them peck the most and the fastest was randomly reinforced. Sometimes you give them a pellet after one peck. Sometimes you give them a, peck, a pellet after eight pecks, you know, and they would just peck away, right? Well, that's what gambling does for us, right? It's random reinforcement, you see. All of these things are not really under our control. They're all things that... Are being done to us, and there are all kinds. Of, you can you can just take this as far as you want. All kinds of stuff works like this. All right, um, but we died to that. In other words, the flesh, the things that are that are physical, that are rooted in our physical ex existence, no longer determine our lives. They're no longer the thing we are all about anymore. You see. We're no longer about satisfying our physical needs. We're no longer about, you know, dealing with our emotions by expressing them in a, a negative way if, or even a positive way. It, we're no longer about all that stuff. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen, right? We're still going to feel those emotions. We're still going to have, we're still going to get hungry, right? But we're not about that anymore because we've died, all right? And the reason I go, I tell you all this is because it's very practical. If you are going through some temptation or something like that, right? If you see that temptation as you, you know, then you can't fight it. You can't fight yourself. But if you see yourself as dead and you see that temptation as something that is not you, you can kind of say, okay, this isn't really who I am. This isn't really the way I want to live. This isn't what my life is about, you see. And that's what the cross allows us to do. The cross allows us to take all of these things. Uh, when we talked about the world. Take all of these things 
sin, the law, enmity with one another, the flesh, the world. There's probably more that I haven't put here. And we say none of those things determine us anymore. None of those things are definite, uh, definitive for us. What is, well, obviously, that's the other side. This is the, this is the going, this is the disconnecting side. So we're disconnected from all this stuff. Now, you can't stay there. You know, you can't just stay disconnected. In fact, Jesus says something like this when he says, um, okay, so let's say a demon gets cast out of somebody and the demon wanders around in lonely places and then he, come, then he says, I think I'm gonna go home. And then he comes back, finds the place swept out and decides to have a party, invites a bunch of demons in there, and you, you're worse off than you were before. Similarly, if you just get rid of a lot of stuff, like, you know, um, you get rid of, say, the world or the flesh or whatever, you don't have anything to fill yourself with. You won't be able to, it won't work. You won't be able to stick it out. Christianity has the negative aspect. That is, our life with God does have this turning away from, but the most important and most powerful part is the turning toward, okay? Instead of trying to turn away from sin, try to turn toward God through his spirit. This is the key. I'm not saying don't turn, I'm not saying go ahead and sin. I'm saying the way you avoid getting caught up in sin is to turn toward God instead of worrying. So grit your teeth real hard, try hard, you know. Try, I'm not gonna think about it. I'm not gonna think about it. I'm not gonna do, you know, grit your teeth, right? No, that that's, you can do that for a while. Maybe you can do it for a long time. But eventually it catches up with you, most of, for most of us. Instead, turn toward God. Turn toward God through prayer, through his word, through fellowship, through all the different things that God has put out there that that enable you to, that are what your life is really about, right? So the cross must be embraced. And the idea is, let me just finish this part. Um, the cross is, I kind of already talked about the first, the first part. So the point is, um, we tend to see the cross as something we want to not, we don't want it. We don't want the cross. We, we think to ourselves, okay, I have to do, I have to let go of various things or, you know, um, I don't want to let go of things. I don't want to let go of anything, but I will if I have to, right? But if we see it that way, we're always going to be fighting it. We're always going to be fighting. We're, God's going to have to drag us along through lots of, uh, trials and um, chastening and so on and so forth because we're we're kind of caught in the middle we're caught between the old way of doing things and the cross which is god's way of freeing us from these old things and so jesus said if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me okay and it's denying yourself not self-denial that means letting go of your right to yourself okay we i feel i have a right to happiness so i'm going to pursue it and whoever gets hurt along the way 
sorry, I have a right to happiness. You know, it's fascinating to me that many people think about that. You know, there are these commercials that say things like, you know, you deserve such and such. You ever hear that? A commercial will say, you deserve whatever it is. I, feel, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But what do you deserve? Why do you, how do you deserve? Why do you deserve, you know? Right? I mean, so we let, so in Christianity, in, in our relationship with God, we let go of our right to ourselves. Not so that we can, that other people can, you know, trample on us or anything else, but so that God can have us. We become a living sacrifice that is a sacrifice where the emphasis is not on the loss but on the gift. We give ourselves to God because we think he'll, he's the one who can do the most with us and for us. It's worth it to give ourselves to God. And we want to give ourselves wholly to God because only in giving ourselves wholly to God can we really know what the will of God is, as Romans uh, 12 says, the will of God, which is, for us, good and acceptable and perfect. It's good, meaning it's good for you. It's acceptable, it means that you will like it. And it's perfect, which means you cannot do any better than God's will. You can do whatever else you want, but you're always going to be not doing as well as you would have if you had followed God's will. So give yourself to God. Take up your cross as a, um, and, and be a living sacrifice. Let go of your claim on your own life. Okay? That's what the cross is all about. All right? Okay. Now... Um, yeah, Daniel's right. We should take we'll take five minute break because oh man, all right, I gotta go a little bit faster. Um, okay, and we're gonna we're gonna do the spirit. We're gonna do a little bit on the word and on prayer. I might just oh, yeah, I guess so. Next week, Edwin's gonna come. Edwin, my uh, my son in law is gonna come, and we're gonna have. A dialogue we're gonna we we had a long talk about some stuff and uh, we were a little bit we, we definitely anyway it might be interesting because there might be a little bit of uh, byplay so uh, it won't just be us in total agreement on everything and so we're gonna talk about the spirit for a bit and then uh, maybe we'll get to a couple more things but Okay, so this is really what I want to talk about at the very beginning because obviously the Spirit is the center of everything. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God's presence with us. And uh, everyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit. It has the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, there was a lot of controversy about this a while back. People talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit and so on. But that's um, kind of died down and, and people have basically pretty much accepted that uh, you get, you, that, that the thing that makes you saved, that seals you as a saved person, is that you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit by God, okay? Which is God himself. 
God gives himself as the gift that you receive when you uh, become a Christian. And then when we, as a pastor, one of the things I do is when I baptize someone, I give them a gift, right? A Bible or a book or, or both. And, uh, but the, um, uh, God gives us a better gift, <laughs> which is himself, uh, the Holy Spirit. And so we have the, this notion of the Trinity, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but it's really an important point because the Trinity is God um, in relationship in his own nature. So when we say God is love, God being love is something that he has in himself. That's who he is. He's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And there are love relationships that exist in his very nature. And so when he, when he loves us, he isn't doing anything he hasn't been doing from eternity, right? It's not like he sort of had to think about it a while and say, I think I'm going to love these people. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I'll try it out and see how it goes. No, he was always loving. God, the Father was always loving the Son. The Son was always returning love to the Father. The Spirit was always the embodiment of their love. And so, you know, we, we see that God, it, God loving us is perfectly natural. In fact, um, we think of uh, salvation as invitation into the life of the Trinity. The very, and, and this is John 17. Those of you who want to know about the deep end of, I always call it the deep end of the swimming pool, as far as God is concerned, read John 17 a few dozen times, and it eventually will start to make sense, hopefully. But this is what God is trying to do, and who he is, and what he, and how he relates to us, how he relates to Jesus, how he relates, to, anyway, how it all works. Um, and it's all about, um, the life of the Trinity and extending that life and including us in that life. It's mind-blowing, okay? There is There are things that you will, if you understand this stuff, your mind will be blown. Okay, so we have God the Father for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? God the Son with us. That is, they, call, they will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And then God the Spirit in us. The Spirit is indwelling us. Okay, So the idea is that we relate to God um, in, uh, how would you put it? I don't want to, see the, the trick is not to say we relate to God in three ways. Because it sounds like there's just God and then we just kind of relate to him differently. No, we, God is three persons and we relate to each person in the appropriate way. But at the same time, the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Spirit. So that when, you know, like when we pray, we pray through the Spirit, right? Because the Spirit's in us, but it goes to the Father. The Father is really ultimately the one we pray to, but we pray through the Spirit because he's right there, you know, you see? So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is I don't want you to get, you know, worried about this think of it as this is the these are the ways that god finds to express his love toward you that's simple simplest way to put it 
The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that he will do everything he promised. In other words, God gave himself as the guarantee for his promises. And, and that's about as good of a guarantee as you can get, right? Um, this is said a number of times. The Holy Spirit is the one through whom we are connected to God moment by moment. This is how we, in other words, we're told to walk in the Spirit, right? How do we walk in the Spirit? Well, because he's there. He's there with us all the time, moment by moment. The Holy Spirit is intimately acquainted with us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He's closer to you than you are to yourself. I know that sounds weird, but if you think about it, it makes sense, okay? Because we're, we don't see ourselves as we really are. We don't see anything. We don't see others as they really are. We don't see ourselves as we really are. But the Holy Spirit in us sees us as we really are and knows us as, knows us as we really are. And the Holy Spirit fills the empty place in us that we're always trying to fill. Um, we're always trying to fill, well, Jesus talks about um, uh, the belly. That is, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. We talked about this last week. We're always trying to fill our bellies. Okay, that's, that's the metaphor. It's the empty place in us. We eat, we drink, we always try to fill the inside, right? Well, you can also do that like psychologically or spiritually or whatever. You're always trying to fill yourself, the inner part, right? Well, God is saying through the Spirit, you will be so fill, full that you're, you'll not only be full, but overflow. Okay, two channels to God. So how do we connect with God? How do we express or actualize our connection with God? God? From God to you, the Word. Now there are a lot of ways that God can talk to you. God can influence you. God can, you know, have, you can have a still small voice. But the most reliable way, the way that will stand you in, you know, in best stead is the Word. The, the uh, Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word basically is God's you know, way of showing you what he wants you to know. This is why we should try. And, okay, and then from, from you to God is, we, is prayer. Now, so in other words, remember that because it's a relationship, there's always mutuality. God speaks to you through, among other things, his word. And God, you speak to God through prayer. Okay? And God wants both of those things to happen. Okay? Now, ordinarily, well, let me see what I'm going to talk about. So the word. So the word, it's interesting. A lot of people think of the Bible as a kind of a club to beat people over the head with. Okay? In other words, you know, the word of God says it, and therefore, you know, that's the way it is. But um, we have to think of the word of God as something that comes into our lives from God that opens up possibilities, possibilities that didn't exist before. For example, <laughs> this is my favorite, um, rejoice always, okay? Now, if how many of you have read Crazy Love by uh, Francis Chan? Yeah. You'll know that in that book, Francis Chan says, Rejoice always. That's a commandment. 
you know. And, and I always thought that's really ironic and funny. Because imagine you wake up first thing in the morning and you're feeling crappy, right? So you open your Bible and you read the thing that says rejoice always. And now you feel really crappy because not only do you feel crappy when you woke up, but you, you're also violating a commandment of God to rejoice, right? So you're thinking, oh man. <laughs> and so here you have a verse that is telling you to rejoice and the effect it has is to make you feel worse, you see. There must, we must have made something, a wrong turn somewhere, you know. This can't be what God intended for that verse. See, but what if you think of it in terms of possibilities? When the Bible says rejoice always, did you ever stop to think, maybe you can rejoice always? Maybe you can have a life that at some fundamental level is full of rejoicing? It's possible. This is what God is holding out for you. You know, he's saying, it, all right, maybe not, maybe it doesn't do it right now. Maybe you don't do it right now. But then, you know, as you go through the day, you start thinking, you know, I think I'm going to choose rejoicing. And what I mean by that is, think of like, like a lot of times when I'm driving, I get all frazzled and annoyed. But, I, but every now and then, I'll look out and I'll notice something that the world is beautiful, you know. I'll say, wow, you know. Or, or as I was driving here, I, I was driving along and I was saying, man, those other drivers are really good. We, there are hundreds and thousands of drivers. I'm driving past and through, and not one of them ran into me or anybody else. They're really good, you know, and it, they do it all the time. Do you ever stop to think of that? I mean, they may make a slight mistake every now and then and do and a funny maneuver, but they don't run into me. They don't run into each other most of the time, like the vast majority of the time, right? I thought, wow, great job, guys. Great job out there. You know, do you ever stop to think about it that way? How much goes right? And I felt good, you see? And this is the kind of thing where you, you're, you're embracing joy instead of embracing grouchiness. I'm, I, I'm really grouchy a lot of times. So I embraced the grouch. Oh, you know, no, you don't want me. I don't want to do that. Why do I want to do that? Instead, I embrace the joy. It's possible. You see, I never would have thought of it if I hadn't been told, rejoice always. I can do that? I can do that? You mean I'm not, you know, I'm not being irresponsible? <laughs> you know, or love your enemies. What? You can get away with that? You can love your enemies and they won't destroy you or, or exploit you? Ah, they may, but you can still love them, you know? After all, you know, Christ died on the cross. His enemies nailed him to the cross and that worked out, even though it took quite a miracle for it to work out. But that's our miracle. We can do that because we have God in the picture, you see? So in other words, the word of God opens up possibilities. That's why we have to see it that way. The word of God breaks in from outside, which is why it's not just about what we think. We want to find out what God is trying to say because it's different. It breaks in. It opens up new possibilities. 
it turns dead-end situations into open-ended situations. That's what it's for. And it also produces faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You cannot believe unless you have heard the word of God. You cannot believe that, let's say, you know, it, what, a while back there was a guy who, um, there's there's a bunch of well-known Christians that all bailed on being Christians at the same time. It seemed like, I mean, within a few years. and. And there was one who was a pastor of a fairly large church in the Midwest, and he bailed. And he, he, he had an affair, quit being a pastor, married the woman he had an affair with, divorced his wife. And he said, I did everything. I, had, I went to marriage counseling, I did seminars, I did everything I was supposed to do and none of it worked. My marriage was a sham for the last 20 years. I didn't get what I was promised. And I thought to myself, but but did God did God promise that if you go to marriage counseling and marriage seminars you'll have a great marriage? I don't remember reading that. I don't remember reading I do remember reading that if you get married you're going to have tribulation. <laughs> That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 7, you know. So what is God promising, you see? So our, if we know the word of God, we can know what God is promising and know what to believe and know what to expect, you see? We can know that God can, is saying, I will do certain things and we can believe it and we can trust it. And then we also know that God is not saying he'll do certain things. You know, like, for example, there's something called the health and wealth gospel. You know, God is, does not promise that we'll always be healthy and doesn't promise we'll always be wealthy. But he promises he'll be with us through all that. And Jesus says, in this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. So God promises to be with us and help us overcome tribulation. But in order to overcome tribulation, you got to have tribulation, right? So you're going to experience tribulation, but you'll overcome it. You'll be able to get through it. In fact, God promises that, you know, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common in man and so on. That verse there says that there will be a way out. Eventually, there will be something that will put an end to the, the temptation and tribulation. So we know, we, we have to know what the word says so we know what to believe and what to expect. The spirit is the one who makes alive, the flesh is useless. The words I speak to you are spirit and life, but there are those among you who do not believe. So we're, the word of God, the word that comes through Christ, is um, um, our, uh, the way that God speaks to us through his that is, he, his spirit uses his, the, word, the written words to speak to us. So I really want to encourage people to find ways to get the word of God into their consciousness. Okay, Now, you can do it in a lot of different ways. You can, you can listen to sermons. You can talk to other people who know the Bible. You can, you can read... Oh yeah, you can read the Bible. You can try that. 
find a way find a way i'm not saying you have to make like some kind of uh um i don't know uh, um, requirement you know in other words you're not you're not saying okay i have to read the bible 15 minutes today or 30 minutes nothing like that it's just that it's there it's there for you just find a way you know build it into your life okay and you don't have to talk about it I and mean, you don't have to tell other people yeah I, I read my bible 15 minutes every day no it doesn't matter you can read it five minutes you can read it a half hour you can get really caught up in it and read a whole like read the whole book of jonah or something or you know or you can read a couple of verses out of the psalms or you know just expose yourself to it and i i believe like i've memorized a bunch of bible verses but i don't usually memorize bible verses anymore i just read it a bunch of times and it sticks the only problem i have with that is i don't remember the verse and the chapter and verse so i'll say oh it says somewhere in the bible and then i'll say it i practically i have memorized it but i won't be able to tell you exactly where sorry about that but anyway um yeah okay then prayer so prayer uh, so this is one another one of those things you know reading the bible is not an obligation praying is not an obligation but if you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend talking to your girlfriend or boyfriend or listening to your girlfriend or boyfriend is not an obligation you want to you want to i hope otherwise why are, why do you have them as your boyfriend or girlfriend you know don't you want to have an interaction with the person that you are you know the, that you have a relationship with you know that's the whole thing that makes the relationship work it is the relationship is the interaction the revealing yourself giving yourself to the other person and taking from the other person what they give and this is the mutuality of it you're talking to god god's talking to you and this is this is the christian life it you go through you go through your day you go through your day and you have god with you it's, right you know um prayer god wants us to walk with him and simply be aware of his presence you might be working you might be doing this or that but to know that god is just there is god there yes so we can kind of kind of when we have the opportunity when we're not caught up in something we can kind of re relax back into the sense of god's presence you know it's like what do you you know all right let's say you're you're at work and you're working 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 and then you take a break and you think ah god i'm taking a break now you're there thank you for for being there right you know just to know he's there and to and to be and to deliberately cultivate that awareness you know think toward god talk to god whenever you whenever you have a moment you know um we live our lives in dynamic interaction with god in other words we're we always bring everything before god i had an interesting experience a few weeks ago um, a couple weeks ago i was I had put my keys somewhere in an unusual place and I was thinking, okay, I gotta go. I gotta go. I can't find my keys. And I was thinking, oh, I gotta find them. And then I was thinking, I should pray to God to help me find my keys. And I thought, oh, come on, Fred, that's, 
it's a little bit silly, you know, after all this, right? You know, because I, I always talk about praying to God to find things or whatever for every little thing. And then I thought, no, it's not silly at all. And I said, Lord, help me find my keys. And right then and there, I turned over something and my keys were under the thing I turned over. And I thought, well, it's not so much that I found the keys. It's that God was reminding me that he cares about every moment of my life, the smallest things. He wants to be with you in the smallest things. <laughs> and so this dynamic interaction is called prayer. I already said some of this. Prayer is not formality. I, it, it is intimacy. You are, you are just coming before God as you are. Whatever you think, honest, honesty is really important. You know, in fact, honesty is crucial. Uh, it says in the Psalm somewhere, um, he desires truth in the inward man. That is, he wants you to come before him with the honesty of your heart. Tell him what you're really thinking as best you can. Don't hide. Don't, don't pretty it up. Give him the raw, X-rated, R-rated, whatever it is. Tell him exactly what's on your mind, even at your worst and at your best, you see. And he's willing to be with you in your worst moments. I know that for a fact. I've had some pretty bad moments, and God's been there, you know. And, you know, he treasures the times you turn to him. God, all right, I wanted to share this with you. Um, and I'm going to sing this song. I did this last week. Um, but I'm going to sing a different one. And um, this is a song that I learned many years ago. And it plays in my head from time to time. <clears throat> and... Uh, I've been talking so much. I haven't got much voice left, considering I hardly had any to begin with. But here goes. All right. <clears throat> be, mm, oh man, I'm not, be, I can't do it. Because, yeah, be, oh boy. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will place him securely on high, because he knows my name. He, uh, I, I will... He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with a long life. A long life. I will satisfy him. Anyway, that's a, it's a different version, but it's the same, this is a psalm. And I think it really expresses the way God views us, you know. God cares about us because we attach to him. He, he wants us, he wants that. 
He doesn't. It isn't just. It isn't a mechanical thing. It isn't a formal thing. God is saying, because He has attached Himself to me, because He hangs on to me, then I'll deliver Him. I will. I will do it. I will do it for Him. I will put. Here it says, I will protect Him, but it actually says. I will place him securely on high because he knows my name. I mean, there's so much relationality here, right? He knows me. He knows who I am. So I'm going to really, you know, I'm going to take care of this person, right? When he calls me, I'll answer him. Call uh, call to God. Call unto God. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will not be disappointed, you know. I will be with him in trouble. You know, this is the most the most wonderful thing that you know there's somebody who will be with you at like i said at at your worst moments i will never leave you nor forsake you right i will rescue him and honor him do you ever think of the fact that god honors us when you know remember in the in the uh, jesus says well done good and faithful servant right we hang in there with God and he says, well done, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. And, you know, I, the thing I, I, we don't understand, we, we sort of have this idea that God is disappointed with us all the time. We think, okay, how does God feel about me? Eh, like I said earlier, eh, he's not really that excited about me, but... You know, he'll put up with me because, after all, he loves me, quote-unquote, right? No, 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 no. God delights in you. God cares about you. God wants to be with you. God, God is, remember it says that, when a, um, that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's, it's party time, Right? When a sinner repents, God says, yes, yes. And it's like the, the younger son who came back, and the prodigal son, the younger son comes back, the father throws a party. I mean, that's, that's a metaphor for the father, God the father, when a sinner returns. You see, there's emotion there. God feels it, okay? We, so, anyway, okay, enough of that. But uh, I wanted to, um, before we go, any questions? All right. I want to mention a book. I don't know if anybody reads these days anymore. I, I have a bad habit of... In, are slim to none? Well, anyway, it's called... <laughs> It's called God of the Possible by Gregory Boyd. And anybody heard of Gregory Boyd? Huh? From, probably from my dad. Gregory Boyd. Yeah, I really like Gregory Boyd. He has actually had a big impact on me. He wrote what I consider the best theology book I've ever read called Trinity and Process, um, which I read, I've been reading for the past four or five years. I finally feel like I understand it which is amazing in itself. It was a, it was a graduate level theological education for me. Anyway, um, just reading that book, I had to read it over and over again to get it. 
But this is nothing like that. This is a, you know, layman's popular explaining um, what's called the open view of God. And the idea is that um, the past is definite, but the future has possibilities. God, ex God and we experience the future as having possibilities, not determined. And the reason this is important is, think about it. If you pray, does it matter? Only if the future has possibilities. Otherwise, God knew what you were going to pray from, you know, when he went, when he snapped his fingers and the universe was there. God also knew that on a certain date you were going to pray for such and such a thing. It didn't matter. I mean, you, you didn't really have any choice. It's not a relationship. See, what you when you pray, God knew you were going to pray and he knew what he was going to do about it. But imagine that God will not act unless you pray. You ever stop to think that that is the idea behind prayer? God knows what we need, but he tells us to make our requests known to him. Why? Make your requests known to me. That is, doesn't he know already? Now, you can say take that as a rhetorical flourish, but if you but one of the points made in this book is the consistent biblical witness is that God doesn't know the way the future is going to work out in detail. That is, he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. He knows what could happen, and he knows that perfectly because he's God. But because the future is not definite, for example, tomorrow. What are you going to do tomorrow? If you don't know, God himself might not know. You see, because you haven't chosen yet. You see, if you wonder about this, you think, whoa, maybe I should never listen to this guy again. But there's a place for, I'll just give you one example. In Exodus, um, God tells Moses, okay, go to the people and, uh, you know, stick your hand into your robe and pull it out. It'll be leprous. Put it back and it'll pull it out again. It won't be leprous. And then God says, and if they don't believe that sign, take your rod, throw it on the ground. It'll turn into a snake. Then pick it up. It'll turn back into a rod. And if they, and maybe they'll believe that. But if they don't believe that, then take water and pour it on the ground and it'll turn to blood. And they'll probably believe that. Pretty sure they'll believe that one. In other words, God didn't know which of those signs they were going to believe. Now, that's what the Bible says. Now, you say, well, m metaphorical, anthropomorphic, blah, 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 blah. But what, why do you take that as metaphorical or anthropomorphic as opposed to other places that you take as literal? How do you know? The Bible says it. And it says it in a number of different places. It says that God even says at one point that the Israelites did something it never entered into his mind that they would do. That is, they were sacrificing their, their children to idols. They're sacrificing their children. God said, I never thought they would do anything like that.
Now, did he mean it? Did he really know they were going to do it? Then why does it say in the Bible, I never thought they would do a thing like that, you see? And you can you can find all anyway. So this book talks about that, and and shows some of the implications of it. And the reason I bring it up is because you have to have a view something like this if you're really going to take relationship with God seriously. You and God are co-creating the future, your own future, and the future of others that you that you help. You know, the people you pray for, it makes a difference. You know, it's not just God, you know, running out. It's not play acting. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he, they were not crocodile tears. Jerusalem really could have listened to him. But they didn't. You ever stop to think about that? Okay. Anyway, I, I know, I know. I just, huh? Yes. So next week we're going to have a sort of a podcasty type thing. We're going to talk about spiritual formation, spiritual practices. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about the practical outworking of things like, you know, what does it all mean? You know, when, when you pray, um, what could you expect from God? What, how, how do you, what is it all, what does, um, uh, what's the, well, anyway, I don't want to give. I don't want to try to explain it all right now. We'll we'll talk about it next week. But anyway, it's going to be like a podcast, and we'll we'll interact. And uh, yeah, 